who is very glad to welcome back to the program a valued guest, Mark Stein. Good evening, sir. Good evening, Mel. Good to be back with you. I should make clear instantly that though you sound as if you're sitting here at the table, you are, in fact, uh, I gather in Norwich, Vermont. Is that right? Uh, that's uh, that's right. I'm uh, just across the river from my home state of New Hampshire, and uh, we've we've got pretty bad snow here too. But I uh, I struggled down to uh, to be here sitting live just uh, for you, Mel. I'm delighted that you did. By the way, you're just across the river from my old town. Uh, for two years in my early academic career, I taught at Dartmouth College. Oh right, in, in Hanover. Yeah, I don't think you'd find it's changed much. It uh, pretty much stays the same decade in, decade out. Well, I was there so long ago that it was uh, not yet a co-ed college when I was there. Oh, well, that, that is one thing that has <laughs> changed. That's a change that always makes a difference. Uh, that is, yeah, that's a change for the better, at least from the guy's point of view, I think. Um, I want to make clear to our listeners that regular listeners will recognize, of course, that Mark Stein has been with us before, and I've even when he's not been on the program, I've often mentioned him and also often put him on our regular program blog, Milt's File. His book, America Alone, The End of the World as We Know It, is, I think, an extremely important volume, and uh, it can be heard on our own audio archive. We talked about that on the night of October 17th last year. And tonight we're drawing from a rather different sort of work by Mark Stein, titled Mark Stein's Passing Parade. Did you have a man named John Nesbitt in mind when you used the term Passing Parade? Yeah, I did actually. Uh, it, it, it's an it's an odd thing because uh, y when you try to come up with a, a name that's uh, uh, appropriate for a collection, what's essentially a collection of obituaries, you don't want to use too much of a depressing uh, yeah. uh, title. And I did consider uh, various other options. Uh, at, at, at one point, uh, I considered calling it uh, the deadbeat. Uh, you know, because that's basically what you do if you write obituaries uh, for publications. You're on the deadbeat, and uh, and then I considered calling it, you know, the crypt of Stein and various other things. <laughs> and it's actually quite, uh, it's quite hard trying to come up with a name that uh, uh, that is perhaps a little more uh, celebratory in in tone. And uh, at the time, I was conscious of the fact that. Uh, the End of the World as We Know It was perhaps the most depressing subtitle for any book, and I didn't want to go down that route uh, that route again. Well, these are eminentos who have left us recently and who are worth uh, considering and thinking about. And you have thought about them with your usual jocular style, but also with quite serious concern as to just what they represent in the many variations of uh, lives well-spent or ill-spent in uh, this veil of tears that is modernity. I think um, that um, almost all of these people can be seen as either uh, having lived exemplary lives or lives of no particular moral quality one way or the other, or appalling lives. Yes, uh, but I think even the ones who uh, have led appalling lives, I mean, there are some what I would call rather sad and bleak stories in here, people who were publicly disgraced. Uh, people who ended their lives in uh, appalling ways. Or people who managed to kill hundreds of thousands, as Idi Amin did. Yes, that's right. Brutal, evil men as well. But I think it's, I think it's impossible to write an obituary of someone if you have total contempt for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that's really my, my only guide to the subject. If you just completely despise and revile someone, in other words, if there's no kind of angle in anything they did, uh, that you respond to, you probably shouldn't be writing about So that. each of them is, some, in one way or another, a creature of our time. I think so. And in, in a way, it's a nice contrast with America Alone. America Alone, 
uh, as, as you know, Milt, was really about big impersonal trends in the world. For example, the demographic decline in Europe, the falling birth rates in Europe. And the coming of Islam in the West. That's right, the surging birth rates in the Islamic world. Now, they're vast impersonal forces that are very hard to get a grip on. They're, they're basically statistics that you're trying to kind of conjure into life. And this is really the opposite side of the spectrum. These are great striking individuals uh, who can have a, a particular influence and sometimes succeed in changing the times for millions of people. Now, I'm and going to start with one of them right now. Of course, the thing to do tonight is to run through some, though we can't do all of these wonderful obituary biographies that you've done. But I'm also going to challenge you at the moment. I'm going to play um, a little bit of music, which relates to one of the people obituarized, if that be a verb, uh, in your new volume. You ready? Yep. Here it is. And there we are. Uh, how does that relate to your book, to a person in your book? Do you know? Well, there's, there's uh, only two pianists uh, featured in, in right. my book, to the, to as, as far as I know. One of them is Bill Miller, who was Frank Sinatra's accompanist, mm -hmm. and that doesn't sound like him, which means it must be uh, Romano Mussolini. Exactly who was, so, of uh, course. Who, who was the son of the famous uh, Mussolini, the uh, big Italian dictator. And uh, when, the, uh, when the Second World War ended and the bottom dropped out of the dictating business in Europe, he, uh, he found himself uh, able to pursue his real love, which was, uh, which was jazz. And, and there uh, he is with, together with Lino Patruno and the jazz stars of Italy and their right. album playing Louis Armstrong. Yeah. And uh, I caught uh, Romano Mussolini uh, on stage in London at the Pizza on the Park uh, about uh, 12, 15 years ago. And uh, of course, everyone was there. Uh, mainly because he was a famous dictator. I mean, he loved jazz, but he, he, he knew that Mussolini was a, a brand name and that people were curious. So he called them, the, you know, the Mussolini All-Stars. I, I, I discover in your obituary uh, of him that the last time he saw his father, it's about 10 days before the father was caught by the partisans and hanged uh, from uh, in that gas station in Milan, uh, he, uh, namely Romano, was playing a selection from Franz Lehar's The Merry Widow, as, yes. dad, as dad came along and said, don't stop playing. Yeah, no, no, and it's a rather touching thing because if you're going to have uh, a really beautiful uh, bittersweet piece of music to be playing for the last time you see your father, mm. uh, then The Merry Widow Waltz by Franz Lehar is one of the most beautiful pieces of music in the world. And, and that's what I mean, really, when uh, if there's something human, in the, even in the story of incredibly wicked people, 
uh, like uh, Il Duce. I mean, this was uh, Mussolini a few days before he wound up hanging from uh, that gas station. And, uh, and yet there is something very human in that last moment when the father and the son uh, essentially uh, speak for the last time. And, uh, and, and, and there's something touching about it, as wicked as uh, the father was. Apparently Romano, and I, all I know about him is what I read in your fine obituary, apparently he remained in some sense a loyal fascist. At least he was given to uh, essentially striking the fascist posture and giving the, the fascist salute. And his daughter became a more serious fascist and was a member of the Italian Senate, is she? Yes, uh, she's actually quite a powerful figure in Italian politics these days. Uh, I, I think I say in the in the book that uh, when she was first elected, uh, people dismissed her as just this kind of bit of neo-fascist mm. cheesecake. You know, she was a pretty-looking gal, and uh, uh, she had a famous name, and they didn't think any more uh, about her than that. But in fact, uh, it, she's actually pitched in. She's proved quite important in... Uh, some forms of uh, coalition building, which in Italy's insane political system is quite important. And, and, and when you look at the greater scheme of things, it looks as if she has far more in common with her grandfather than she does with her mm -hmm. uh, jazz-playing dad. Is there a serious fascist movement that is recognizably the same in its uh, ultimate values and ultimate purposes as was Mussolini's movement? Well, I wouldn't put it that way, but I think uh, it's true to say that the uh, Italian fascists don't feel as tainted as uh, fascists and, uh, uh, and nationalists in other parts of Europe. Well, they weren't given to genocide. No, and but they, they feel... but they accepted it from their from their German partner. Exactly, but I think I think I think people look at Mussolini uh, very much as the kind of trains run on time fascist, mm. you know, the strong man on a horse, and it's certainly true if you look at. Uh, for example, election results in East Germany uh, recently that uh, a lot of Europeans, uh, given their present problems, seem to be turning to the strong man on a horse routine again. And uh, and in fact, uh, uh, the uh, the distaff side of the Mussolini family might well uh, be filling that role in uh, in Italy. In Wherever days. we turn tonight, as we look at these various uh, fascinating obituaries, uh, and even enjoy their the comic turn in them. Wherever we look tonight, we will be drawn back, as you are drawn back, to the question of what the current state of Western civilization is, what threats face it, why its leaders are so weak and pusillanimous, and why its journalists are so often so totally off cue and confused as to the real nature of history as it's being made in our lives. And yes. uh, that's my overview of what we're talking about tonight. And you will tolerate it if I tell you now that we must pause for some commercials. We'll be directly back uh, to Mark Stein. And I have another musical clue and cue for you, Mark, which we'll play right after these words. And my guest tonight is one of the most interesting and I think one of the most valuable writers on the contemporary journalistic scene, Mark Stein. That's spelled S-T-E-Y-N. And the book just now on hand is Mark Stein's Passing Parade, Obituaries and Appreciations. And Mark, here's another man that you appreciate, and uh, uh, you will recognize this instantly, though uh, he's doing something rather unusual for his role. He's singing to a crowd. Here he is.
I imagine, Mark, you have no trouble identifying that, do you? That uh, sounds like John Paul II. In Warsaw, shortly after uh, he, his elevation to the papacy, ninth, spring 1979, his first trip back to Poland. Yes, and, uh, and, and in fact, you said uh, we don't often hear him singing. He, he in fact, was a very uh, literary man. He, oh, wrote, yes. uh, he wrote poems, and uh, some of those poems were set to uh, music. I think you can uh, still get a couple of CDs of what are effectively uh, the Pope's songs. He has, in fact, a very affecting, very musical voice. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, but the more important thing about him, though the singing is part of the general pattern, of course, that is, that, w that uh, artistic urge within him, uh, the um, and that urge to connect to a mass of people as he did to the citizens of Poland as he went back to it. But the significant thing about him, of course, he's one of your heroes with regard to the history of the West in recent years. Well, I think he he changed uh, the the course of history in uh, in Europe. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, in if you look back to 1978 when Pope Paul, uh, his predecessor, but one died. Uh, Pope Paul felt at the end of his life uh, that his papacy was a failure. And although that's a harsh judgment, uh, I think uh, the, the very uh, best one can say about Pope Paul is that Pope Paul's uh, papacy saw a period of decline and uncertainty in the Catholic Church. Well, you know, Paul feared a direct confrontation with communism, it seems yes. to me. In the yeah. famous speech he gave at the UN, uh, the whole theme is we, we never again war. Jamais la guerre, jamais plus la guerre, yeah. was the theme of that famous speech. And and in fact, that is really the problem with I think uh, the Europeans in the post Second World War period. That if you go to the concentration camps uh, in John Paul II's part of the world, and you see those words that are chiselled on the markers outside the camps, never again, yeah. and you think it means that they're never again going to tolerate genocide, they're never again going to tolerate evil. What it turns out to mean, in most cases, is that never again, are, in fact, are they going to confront wickedness? Are they going to confront evil? And I think uh, Pope Paul uh, symbolized that, that uh, he and many of the closest people to him in the Vatican were very uncertain about how to resist the modern trends in the world, the sexual revolution, and various other things that challenged traditional uh, Catholic teaching. John Paul II, uh, in fact, uh, perhaps because of his Polish background, was much bolder on that. He was, a, he was a strategist too. He understood with certain things that he didn't care for, uh, that there were times you should pick your battles and times you should keep quiet. But on the whole, he was a much uh, stronger and confident voice than, uh, than his previous. You, you mentioned Stalin, Stalin's taunt uh, with re reference to an earlier pope, I guess uh, uh, Pius XII. How many divisions does the pope have? And your point is that this pope had plenty of divisions. That's right, and I think that's actually a, a lesson for the time that Stalin misunderstood, that there are other types of force other than uh, military force, and that sometimes if they're deployed in the right way, those other types of force, those other types of force, strong faith, a civilizational confidence, uh, can actually be far more effective. If he had not been there, do you think the history of Europe down to the present moment would have worked out differently? Yes, I think so, uh, because I think uh, he was an explicitly political pope in that he understood that, that part of uh, his uh, duty, it had fallen upon him, in effect, to challenge what, it, what was undoubtedly a very wicked, not, not just because it was a uh, radically secularist view, but uh, a very wicked regime, which was the, uh, the communist rule in, uh, in Eastern Europe. He'd lived under that. 
And so he wasn't prone uh, to the delusions about it that many Western uh, cardinals and archbishops are. Uh, he understood what it was like to be to to try and uh, hold on to your faith in a land where, whenever the uh, the poles uh, the Polish government built these new housing projects, they refused to allow building permission for a new church to be built. Uh, he understood. Uh, the difficulties in holding on to your faith in a prison state in a way that uh, Western archbishops and cardinals didn't. There are a few clear heroes in this book of obituaries, and they're not really obituaries. They are essays on interesting and important lives lived through in our time, uh, Mark Stein's passing parade. But certainly another heroic figure, as you view him, and I confess as I view him as well, is a former president of the United States, namely Ronald Reagan. We're about to pause for a quick uh, update on the news, and then on to Ronald Reagan. And again, I've got a sound clip, which we'll play for you and for our listeners directly after that news update from Veronica Carter. And once again, our guest tonight is Mark Stein, and we're drawing from his new book, Mark Stein's Passing Parade, Obituaries and Appreciations. That is, by the way, uh, just published by Stockade Books. Um, for, uh, these obituaries were written for various journals, were they not? Yes, they, they, they span, uh, I think, about 15 years. Uh, the, some of them are, uh, were written as part of my regular column. I remember when Princess Margaret died, I think it's uh, just under five years ago now, and it was in the early stages of the war on terror and after the Afghan campaign. And if you're writing about Osama and jihad, jihad, jihad 24-7, it's actually very relaxing just to... Uh, write about somebody like Princess Margaret, just uh, just as therapy, in fact, just to mm. get the kind of load of war off your shoulders. And I basically just wrote about uh, a, a rather memorable uh, lunch I'd uh, been at with uh, with Princess Margaret. Princess and, Margaret on one side of you or across the table and Vera Lynn next to you. Yes, Dame, Dame Vera Lynn, who uh, s some of your older listeners will record as, uh, recall as Britain's forces sweetheart yeah. during the war. She sang all those uh, English wartime we'll songs. We'll meet again, don't know where, don't know when. Yes, one of those slightly stoic British love songs. Uh, if you've ever heard the Frank Sinatra record of it, which he made in the 60s, and uh, Sinatra makes the mistake of trying to turn it into a real love song. Yeah. And, of course, you cannot. It is just a kind of very stiff... Stoic, uh, stiff upper lip. But do you, do you uh, remember? Love song. Do you remember the great use that Stanley Kubrick made of that? Uh, yes, that's right. At actually. the end of Doctor Strangelove. Yep, yep. And 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 uh, as the world is being destroyed. Yes, and and the interesting thing uh, about that is that uh, then uh, about ten years after that, uh, the film Yanks uh, with um, the Richard Gere made. Uh, set about um, American servicemen in England, uh, managed to take the other great iconic British record of the Second World War, uh, I'll, I'll Be Seeing You by uh, Anne Shelton, uh -huh. and do the same thing to that, uh, so that in, in effect uh, both, uh, both great British uh, wartime records got, uh, got kind of spoiled by those movies. But now back over the pond to our own country and to Ronald Reagan. Uh, you write a very affecting and, of course, a very appreciative obituary about Reagan. Um, do you have your book in front of you at the moment? Yes, yes I do. Good. Would, may I ask you to read, if only, the last few paragraphs, because they convey something uh, quite beautiful, about the man who uh, <coughs> comes up to him as he's walking, uh, uh, I suppose, not too far from his home in Bel Air. Wasn't that where it was? That's, that's right. And I, yeah. I'd been talking about uh, how uh, President Reagan 
uh, how he was beloved in, uh, in many Warsaw Pact countries. They've now got squares named after him in the heart of town, and they've got statues to him. And I say uh, one man who understood was Yakob Bravin, a Ukrainian emigre, who in the summer of 1997 happened to be strolling with his grandson in Armand Hammer Park near Reagan's California home. They chanced to see the former president out taking a walk. Mr. Ravine went over and asked if he could take a picture of the boy and the president. And when they got back home to Ohio, it appeared in the local newspaper, the Toledo Blade. Ronald Reagan was three years into the decade-long twilight of his illness and unable to recognize most of his colleagues from the Washington days. But Mr. Ravine wanted to express his appreciation. Mr. President, he said, thank you for everything you did for the Jewish people, for Soviet people, to destroy the communist empire. And somewhere deep within there was a flicker of recognition. Yes, said the old man, that is my job. Yes, that was his job. Mm -hmm. Beautifully wrought. Um, I've got a clip here from a speech that Reagan gives to the country uh, shortly after he comes back from his um, occasion at the Brandenburg Gate, uh, the famous moment where he says, Mr. Gorbachev, take, tear down that wall. Um, just a minute or so, but let's hear it. You've been hearing and reading reports that nothing was really accomplished at the summit and the United States in particular came home empty-headed. Well, this was my seventh summit and the seventh time I've heard that same chorus. You know, might be appropriate, a noted bullfighter wrote a poem, a few lines of which do seem appropriate. The bullfight critics ranked in rows fill the enormous plaza full, but only one is there who really knows, and he's the one who fights the bull. The truth is, we came home from this summit with everything we'd hoped to accomplish. And tonight I want to report to you on decisions made there that directly affect you and your children's economic future. I also have a special message, one that's about our own economy, about actions that could jeopardize the kind of progress we made toward economic health last week in Venice, as well as the prosperity that during the last six years, all of us here in America have worked so hard to achieve. But before beginning, I must make a personal note about something we saw on the last day of our journey. When we stopped in Berlin to help celebrate the 750th anniversary of that noble city. I know that over the years, many of you have seen the pictures and news clips of the wall that divides Berlin. But believe me, no American who sees firsthand the concrete and mortar, the guard posts and machine gun towers, the dog runs, and the barbed wire can ever again take for granted his or her freedom or the precious gift that is America. That gift of freedom is actually the birthright of all humanity. And that's why, as I stood there, I urged the Soviet leader, Mr. Gorbachev, to send a new signal of openness to the world by tearing down that wall. I'm sure, Mark, you will agree that uh, a line from Julius Caesar, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar does apply. He was a man, all in all, we shall not look upon his like again. Yes, I, I do agree with that. And I think even as we see today, in part, uh, with the administration's current troubles, uh, that there are times when uh, even the communication skills, even, even if uh, you've got the right policy, even if your uh, worldview is essentially sound, you have to be able 
uh, to sell it to the public and to make them see it that way too. And that is clearly a lack in the, in the present administration. You know, I, I start really with a segment uh, in the book that is about different ways of looking at the 1970s, which was a very strange time. Uh, it was a time when basically people thought the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact was a permanent feature mm. of the world. And the Soviets, in fact, were convinced they were going to win. They were gobbling up real estate uh, all over the planet. If you, not just uh, the American naval base at Vietnam, the uh, British uh, port at oh, Aden yes. had fallen into Soviet hands. And this, brings us, this brings us to your obituary of Leonardo Galtieri, doesn't it? Yes, he, he was this uh, kind of... Uh, That's a name that most of our listeners will not recognize. No, he, he was, by the standards of uh, world dictators, he was a kind of nickel-and-dime uh, version of the, of, of the dictators. Uh, he, he was uh, there in uh, Argentina, and he decided that uh, the state of the world being what it was 25 mm -hmm. years ago, that he was going to take the Falkland Islands. This was, uh, of course, after he and his regime had managed to dispatch some perhaps 30,000... Disappeared, as they called them. Yes, they they they'd taken uh, to uh, dealing with their enemies in various creative ways, pushing them out of planes uh, over the uh, ocean, uh, and then uh, after that, uh, coming up with ingenious variations, like instead of uh, instead of actually killing the guy who is your enemy, just having his kids killed. I mean, they were a brutal regime. But they figured they could take the Falkland Islands from Britain because they looked at the downed helicopters in the Iranian desert after the botched rescue attempt by Jimmy Carter. Uh, they looked at the way, for example, that communists had seized Grenada. Uh, they looked at uh, the various uh, ignominious retreats by all Western powers in the previous few years, and they, and, and they figured why would the moth-eaten, toothless British lion resist. And they were staggered. They were staggered when Mrs. Thatcher then dispatched this task force uh, to liberate these uh, bunch of no-account islands in the South Atlantic. And uh, I do think that that uh, was really a lesson. Uh, the, the Argentine dictatorship fell soon afterwards. And you think and, that was uh, a turnaround moment, even for those who observed it from Europe? Yes, I, I think I think so. I think it was it was in a sense the first war in which uh, the of these little uh, kind of proxy conflicts that have been going on uh, since the Second World War. Uh, it was the first time that uh, that the situation was was reversed. Uh, you know, there, there was a essentially um, a a kind of defeatist mood throughout the West in the 1970s. Uh, if you look at the way. The West was supine in the face of terrorism. Uh, European governments negotiated with terrorists. Uh, they, uh, at one point, I think in two years in the early 1970s, 50 terrorists were arrested by European governments. Only seven of them wound up in jail. The 43 of them was, were essentially just uh, dispatched back to uh, be able to kill again. Uh, the West was weak uh, in response to all threats. Uh, and including the Iranian hostage crisis. And this was the one I think that really started, is marks the dividing line between uh, that dark period in the 70s when it looked as yeah. if the Soviet Union might actually win by default. You know, I must tell you, in my rather long career as a so-called talk show host, uh, many eminent figures have been here, of course, in the studio, um, as you are tonight, not in our studio, but uh, in a radio station in Vermont, but um, one that stands out, of course, is Margaret Thatcher, who was here twice. Uh, and uh, I had admired her, but also thought there were some flaws in her, which I had perceived from a great distance. <laughs> uh, indeed, I was sitting in the gallery of uh, the House of Commons the day before 
she uh, was forced to resign uh, when everybody in Commons, of course, was whispering and uh, cackling over the tremendous uh, sense of change that was imminent. But be all that as it may, I was, of course, deeply impressed by the woman as she when she was here, uh, and also as we talked about that particular crisis, she said it was clear that she had not a second thought about what to do. Uh, the the sovereignty and the significance of the British government and it was being threatened and one had to respond in full force, which she did, and I think that did give a tremendously significant signal for the rest of the Western world. Uh, yeah. We are, at the moment, about 10 minutes late for a batch of commercials. So we'll pause for two or three minutes and then directly back to Mark Stein after this. And we return to Mark Stein, who is with us on an ISDN line. That's the sort of thing that makes him sound as if he's in the studio. But in fact, he's in a radio studio in Norwich, Vermont at the moment, having come down from uh, his own residence. W uh, in what town in New Hampshire are you living? <laughs> well, I've become a little more security uh, conscious since uh, don't September, <laughs> don't September 11th. But so. someplace in northern New Hampshire. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, in a, I'm in a relatively small town, and uh, I've, uh, I, 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 was, uh, I was on a TV show uh, recently, and the, the interviewer asked out of, out of the blue, well, uh -huh. it says on your book you divide your time between New Hampshire, Quebec, and London. Uh, where where do your children go to school? <laughs> I thought that was uh, that was more information than I was Quite willing right. to reveal over the radio. Quite right. But do say something about your own career. Uh, I've only uh, I've been trying to piece it together from what I have been able to read, just uh, poking around on the internet. I know that you were born in Canada, but you had a, a career with BBC for a number of years, did you not? Uh, yes, I, I worked at the BBC for a while. The Beeb. Yep, and I was my sister, who is uh, still a producer at the uh, at BBC Television. She was walking down the corridor one day, and she passed these two executives uh, in conversation. And one of them said to the other, "Well, what we really need for this show is the new Mark Stein." Well, at that point, the old Mark Stein was only about 26. So I uh -huh. figured I didn't really have much of a future at the BBC, and that's when I kind of uh, retreated to the hills of uh, New Hampshire and. Uh, uh, and have been uh, living in uh, quiet obscurity ever since. Well, hardly obscurity. You you are around the world a lot, and you're published all over the world, I know. At yes, I, I, I used to think before the Internet that, that that was quite a good strategy because, you know, overexposure is a very common thing in the media, and I figured that if instead of uh, having five columns a week in uh, Chicago or New York, you did... Uh, one column in Chicago, and you did one column in Australia, and in, you did one column in London. Uh, people wouldn't get tired of you, but with the internet, people can get tired of you at the uh, at the click of a switch now. Well, you have, in fact, a very large uh, and enthusiastic following, as I well know, and indeed, uh, much of your work is available, of course, in all of the publications to whom you contribute. Uh, the local one is the Chicago Sun Times, where you have a column every week, but also many of the papers around the English-speaking world many magazines, one that I read regularly and whose editor is a, a friend of mine, namely uh, the, um, the New Criterion. Uh, yes, that's a, that's a marvelous publication. I recommend it uh, to anyone. It does some really good work and it has some uh, quite cracking essays. A lot of my uh, big thoughts, insofar as I have any, <laughs> have been formed by uh, essays that originally appeared in the New Criterion. Well, your very important essay of early last year, I guess, it was first published, it's the demography, stupid, was a, uh, a preface to or a precursor of your book published uh, late last year, uh, America Alone, which, I, which we talked about when you were last with us, and which I think is really uh, a very significant uh, warning to the West.
It's yes, a warning I, that we are possibly going under as a civilization. Yes, and I think I think it's it's uh, it's it's interesting if you uh, uh, do a book like that, which is a big picture book. You know, looks at these the really big themes of the next uh, uh, fifteen twenty years, as I see it. Uh, in a sense, this book is a companion to that because th these are the small pieces of the puzzle mm -hmm. that illuminate some of those big themes that you see in in uh, individual lives. So I think the the two. Uh, you know, um, uh, I, d I don't want to uh, kind of sell them as a set, but <laughs> I do think they go quite well together. No, they do indeed. And in fact, your, comment your commentary on how the press mishandles and misunderstands almost everything, and how most public officials misunderstand almost everything, quite apart from how they're yielding to Islamic assertiveness when they shouldn't. But even, for example, what you've got to say in this very volume, in your obituary of Diana, Princess of Wales, where you're dealing with the Diana hysteria that followed her uh, unfortunate death in that traffic tunnel in Paris. Yes, and, and I'd say, I, in fact, I had a postscript to that because I think it's one of the few things that I got wrong. Uh, you know, I did think that she'd actually succeeded in changing things uh, in Britain, that somehow she had inflicted permanent damage on the Queen and the royal family mm -hmm. in the manner of her death. And in fact, I then realized, I think a year later, that... Uh, she was uh, the most empty kind of celebrity, that is, pure celebrity, which depends upon living presence, living presence. And the fact Celebrity is, in the definition of Daniel Borston, a celebrity is somebody who's famous for being well-known. Yes, exactly, and, and I think that depends. Uh, fa being famous for being well-known uh, depends on being famous for being there, and when you're not there, it's very hard to, uh, to see it. And in all that Diana hysteria that was going on at the time, uh, I remember the city of Toronto proposed naming a new subway station uh, in honor of Diana. They were going to call it the Diana Princess of Wales subway station. Of course, people went, people said, oh, this is completely insulting. This is the most important woman on the face of the planet, and you want to name a subway station after her. Whereas, in fact, I think the city of Toronto, the Toronto Transit Commission, actually called, called it about right in that respect. But you have a great deal to say in that same obituary about um, all the... The, the apothe apotheosis of Diana, even while she was alive and certainly after her death, a central figure is Sir Elton John. Yes, it's very interesting to me. You know, people talk about the price of fame. People claim, you know, they say, oh, this poor woman, she was hounded by these paparazzi. They wouldn't leave her alone. She had no chance for a life and all the rest of it. You know, there's lots of, one of the interesting things about Britain, for example, compared to the United States, is it's very easy just to catch a train and be riding in the uh, second class compartment up from Bristol uh, on a Monday morning, and you'll be sitting uh, across the table from uh, Princess Anne, the Queen's daughter, who uh, is a very rather penny-pinching woman and likes to go up on what they call a cheap day return on British Rail, so she goes in the second-class compartment. It's very easy to live an ordinary life as a member of the royal family. I recount in that story on uh, Diana a couple of uh, occasions where I met mm -hmm. her, one time having lunch in a restaurant in Kensington in London, uh, she chose, if you're really concerned about the pressures of fame and being in the public eye, why hang out with rock stars and movie stars? You know, uh, the, the people who came to the memorial service, Elton John and George Michael and Tom Cruise, that tells you an awful lot about where uh, Diana was drawn to. She was a very un-English princess in that respect. Well, she was a, a rather unsophisticated uh, young woman drawn into a life that she couldn't handle, I would say. 
Yes, and I think she she did uh, she was uh, deeply damaging. Uh, you you know it, it, it was a very unsuitable marriage. No. Um, I uh, I was know, amazed to learn from your book that the one wise thing Idi Amin ever did in his life was to warn the Prince of Wales not to marry her. Yes, and that's that's the other interesting thing. Everyone says Idi Amin's a complete crackpot, insane African dictator. When he was notified uh, uh, that uh, the uh, the Prince of Wales was going to be <laughs> married to Lady Diana Spencer, he sent the Prince a telegram saying, this is a terrible mistake, no good yes. will come of it. He turned out to have called it right, and everybody else got it wrong. As, uh, as somebody said, when Ernest Hemingway married his first wife, Safine Ramal, <laughs> it will finish badly. <laughs> and this, and this, well, this, uh, this did uh, finish very yeah. badly. And uh, Mark, we're due once again for some commercials and then a newscast. So you're going to be out of uh, the picture for the next seven or eight minutes. But I look forward to resuming with you right after this. And again, we rejoin our guest for the evening, Mark Stein, S-T-E-Y-N. You should know that because. It's important that you uh, get the proper spelling of the author of the book uh, that you really ought to get your hands on as soon as possible. Mark Stein's Passing Parade, Obituaries and Appreciations. Mark, is it possible that you are somehow a reincarnation, a coming again of old Plutarch? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. Uh, that's, uh, that's flattering company. Why, but, why well, do you... There is something Plutarchian about this book, is there not? What, what, what would you say? There's something Plutarchian about this book. Really? That is to say, well, of course, you do biography, but looking to the moral meaning of the life as lived well or poorly. Well, well, that's uh, that's a very that's a very grand way of you you to put it, uh, Milton. I'll take that. But I, uh, I, I, I'm not sure I'd put myself in that lofty uh, company. I, I, I felt uh, when I started doing obituaries for the Atlantic Monthly uh, here that. Uh, 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 the art of the obituary is has lapsed a bit in the United States. Mm -hmm. I, I would say, for example, the New York Times, which is the newspaper of record, one of its big weaknesses is obituaries, uh, if you compare it with uh, most equivalent newspapers in most parts of the world. Uh, they, 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 their newspapers read to me like bits of modular furniture. You know, they're in the vault, they've mm -hmm. been worked on by five or six different writers. And put in the vault ten, ten years before the death. That's or, right. Or twenty which, years before. And, and I don't really feel you can uh, you can get a sense of a life like no. that. I, I always liked the at my newspaper in London, uh, the Daily Telegraph. They had marvelous military obituaries uh, that I, I always used to enjoy with kind of obscure figures who uh, were just uh, would be not terribly important figures. Somebody who'd been chief justice in the Solomon Islands yeah. but had happened to have a good war, or in, oddly. Uh, camp figures like uh, this guy Bunny Roger, who uh, who who uh, wore uh, you know fantastic makeup for these incredibly insanely brave raids he did uh, in war-torn Europe, uh, and uh, they 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 seem to have a, just a lot more fun with the obituary art than the New York Times did. Speaking of having a good war, one of the fine uh, pieces in this book is about a man of whom I knew nothing. I think before I read your obituary. The Duke of Devonshire. Yes, and he's one of those people. I have a real uh, sort of little section on people who are uh, essentially just famous for being someone's uh, wife or son or daughter mm. or descendant. He's, he was the 11th Duke of uh, Devonshire, uh, and he w and he was a kind of marvelously modest man. He um, he was a terrible philanderer, uh, but it, again he 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 was awfully decent about it, as uh, as 
as much as one can be. And, and the advice he gave to others was British girls are best. Yes, he said, he said uh, you know, Italian girls and French girls are okay for dalliance, but uh, stick to English girls is by far the best. Uh, but he, he was actually a serious uh, fellow. He, was, he served in the government, in, in Harold Macmillan's government in Britain, and he kind of midwived uh, a handful of uh, post-colonial nations, uh, new, uh, uh, British colonies, to independence. And he was uh, a very brave figure in the war, was he not? Yes, and, he, and again, he, he would never have dreamed of actually talking uh, about any of those things that uh, he did in Italy. He had a, tr a tremendous war, and I think it's, he would have found, for example, uh, John Kerry's uh, presidential campaign just unutterably uh, vulgar, just the idea of making mm -hmm. a big show uh, about uh, what you did in Vietnam. He, he won the military uh, cross for uh, holding a hill in Italy, uh, despite being surrounded on all sides. It was an almost insanely brave thing to do and of, of quite serious military uh, consequence. But uh, he, would, he was one of those uh, chaps who thought, well, you know, it's, uh, one, one shouldn't really make a big deal about it, and so he didn't. Let's give the full sense of what's in this book. I've only drawn upon three or four, or maybe it's five by now, of the um, obituaries you've got here. But in fact, What's the total number? It's about 40 people, isn't it, or more? I think, I think there's an, uh, an even 50, 52, 50, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, you have it in front of you. You want to run the roster? Well, I, I've got famous names. I, I've got, uh, I've got uh, Bob Hope. Uh, I've, uh, I've uh, got Artie Shaw and Ray Charles. Uh, there's, there's a kind of little cluster of uh, minor monarchical figures, such as Prince Rainier of Monaco and uh, Queen Juliana of the Netherlands. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, a guy who turned out, I, I put him in, uh, he, he inspired the book in many ways. I, I, uh, we have a request of the week feature on my website, and I asked the lady who deals with that, what's the most requested column in all the years that uh, we've been running this feature? And she said, well, it's your obituary of the Reverend Canaan Banana. I love him. <laughs> uh, and he is this uh, relatively obscure <laughs> African politician who, uh, who, whose uh, career ended in disgrace uh, and prompted uh, some of my all-time favorite newspaper headlines, it including... All, it you yeah, know, Mandela told hand over banana. <laughs> it was, uh, well, as you it, write that obituary, you cannot resist every possible play on banana, including, of course, with banana split at, that, that's at some right. point. Well, well, in fact, they passed a law in Zimbabwe to make it illegal to make jokes about uh, Kata Banana's Well, he name. was for a while the president of Zimbabwe, was he not? Yes, and it was said that this was a... He was, he was the first president of Zimbabwe in the 1980s, and it was said that this was like a, a kind of malicious little joke by Lord Soames, who was the last governor of, uh, of the British colony uh, in the 1980s, uh, that, that Zimbabwe would be the first literal banana republic, uh, and, they, and, that, uh, and that he midwifed uh, President uh, Kader Banana to, uh, to, to, to be Zimbabwe's first, uh, first president. But he's in there. There's a couple of other uh, foreign leaders, uh, like Idi Amin. There's uh, some uh, figures who I think are rather sad figures. Uh, Sid Luft, Judy Garland's mm -hmm. uh, husband, is in there. Who comes through as a, a very impressive man in his own quiet way. Yes, and I think actually he, he did love Judy. Judy Garland was surrounded, as uh, you know, her daughter Liza Minnelli is to this day, by the most wretched and third-rate people who just run through the money and, uh, and, and leave the poor woman in far worse financial shape and emotional shape 
than they were. I mean, she was taken advantage of by some quite extraordinary uh, scoundrels who did truly appalling things to her. And Sid Luft was really the one man who truly loved her and gave her a second act in her career after mm. what we think of as the Wizard of Oz and the Andy Hardy period. He gave her that marvelous second act, including uh, the film A Star Is Born, including the great albums she made in the 1950s. And the all those appearances Hall. at the Palladium in yes. London and so on. Yes, and the, yeah. and the marvelous variety show uh, that she did in the uh, early 60s that gets closer to the real Judy Garland than anything else. This was all Sid Luft's. He was this little kind of third-rate scrappy mm. Uh, figure, uh, you, you could never quite figure out what was holding him up. One of my uh, colleagues interviewed him not long before he died and said, well, how do you manage to support yourself? What do you do with yourself these days? And he said, uh, well, I, I've recently been uh, putting together a deal to try to buy Indonesia an Air Force, which is the sort of, is the sort of line you can't, you just, uh, yeah. that just hangs there. I mean, if you were Indonesia and you needed uh, some, uh, you, you wanted to upgrade yourself to a, a, a fully functioning Air Force, would you turn to Judy Garland's ex-husband to get it for you? Uh, Others uh, who are biographized or obituarized in this book, well, there's so many. John F. Kennedy Jr., that's a very special piece. Kay Swift, who turned out, I hadn't heard about her before, to have been <coughs> the most important girlfriend of George Gershwin. Uh, that, that's, that's right. Uh, Oscar Levant was sitting in the stork club yeah. one night. Uh, George Gershwin and Kay Swift uh, were dating a long time. Uh, and uh, she always hoped he'd marry her, and he never did. And uh, they walked into the stork club one night, and Oscar Levant said, ah, here comes George Gershwin with the future Miss Kay Swift. Yes. Uh, she, she was mm. the one who was the closest to being uh, Mrs. Gershwin insofar as anyone would have been, and uh, one she of played the an important role in his life. One of the interesting people you've got here, uh, whom I have met, um, is uh, Michael Strait, uh, a name not familiar, I'm sure, to most of our listeners, though he was, in fact, the American um, member of the Cambridge Spies Ring in England, uh, and uh, we've got some commercials that are just about you right now. When we come back, Mark, I'd like to play for you a brief excerpt from a program I did with him way back, I think, in 1984, when he did his own memoir, his own confessio, and uh, I'll get you to talk about him further. Um, this is a, he, he, What's significant about him, I'm sure you will agree, is that he is of that general category uh, of bright young men from the upper classes or the upper middle classes who are essentially attracted to the adversary nation or the adversary culture opposing your own, which uh, according to some historians is really a sign of a civilization in decay and disorder. And certainly the Cambridge spies generally represent that, including their American member. Uh, we will return to a conversation with Mark Stein, a brief excerpt from a conversation with Michael Strait some years ago after we pause for this. Michael Stein, I invite you to go to page 137 of your own book. And if uh, you would, I'd ask you to read uh, that first page uh, up till the very last full sentence. And uh, <laughs> then we could take it from there. Because I do want our listeners as well to get a sense of uh, the fine, vigorous prose, uh, often with a turn of irony and, uh, uh, and a twinkle in the eye or a twinkle in the, in the pen or on the... Uh, or on the word processor, so to speak. Okay, well, this is uh, from uh, the essay on Michael Strait. He would have liked the Washington Post headline, Michael Strait dies, magazine editor, NEA official. Yawn, on to the next page. 
Strait was a mediocre editor of the family mag, The New Republic, and it's doubtful whether anyone other than fellow arts bureaucrats wants to read of his service as deputy assistant associate whatever at the National Endowment for the Arts. Michael Whitney Strait led a long, comfortable, undistinguished life as the sort of chap who turns up in the index of other people's biographies, as the third fellow on the left in the picture of the committee meeting or the wedding party or the mixed doubles. He was related by blood or marriage to everyone from the Vanderbilts to Jackie Onassis. When he returned to America from Cambridge University in 1937, he was in need of career advice and so looked up an old family friend, President Roosevelt. But the only distinguishing feature of his lethargic progress through the American establishment is that Michael Strait was a Soviet spy. At this point, wherever he is now, Mr. Strait is no doubt objecting, as he did to the London Review of Books in 1995, quote, I was not a spy in the accepted usage of that word. Whatever gets you through the night. But he was a spy accepted and used by the Soviet NKVD at the same time as he was a speechwriter for President Roosevelt. Wonderful. And I must tell you now, um, I don't know whether you knew this or not, Michael Strait ended his life here in Chicago. That is, he died a natural death. He uh, had a long, lingering illness. And a friend of mine, as it happens, was doing PR work for a hospice organization who were tending Michael Strait. He lived at home with his wife. I think she was a second or possibly a third wife. Uh, and uh, But the hospice people were doing what hospice people do uh, for people who are on the way out. Uh, he apparently, and my friend had met him and talked with him a few times. And he asked me one night, the friend did, did I, had I ever heard of Michael Strait? I said, yes, of course. In fact, I did a radio program with him back in, I think, 19, well, in the 1980s. Turns out to have been 1984, according to what I've got in front of me, February 22nd, 1984. And of course, I began that. He had done, as you know, a memoir. And I had read that, and that's why he was on the program. And I began it by reviewing and rehearsing the charges against him, so to speak. And I want you to hear his response. Here it is. But I think I've just summarized that for uh, which many have been faulting you over the last few years. And of course, I look forward to your response. Well, let me say in response that I think what you've said is perfectly fair and essentially true. I should have gone long before I did. And there is no uh, excuse for that. I've never tried to excuse myself on that score. But there are a couple of factors which are worthwhile mentioning. Uh, the only man I had hard evidence on was Anthony Blunt. And to the best of my knowledge, he was only an art historian. The only crime that he could commit, as far as I knew, was recruiting others in Cambridge, like myself. So that had I chopped him off when I first knew about him, I might have prevented the recruiting of one other man, Leo Long. Uh, I don't think there were any others recruited, and Blunt himself, of course, has said no others. Uh, I did only heard of Guy Burgess, whom I believed to be the man behind Blunt, when he came to America uh, on his way to Moscow in 1940. Uh, he was turned back from Moscow by the ambassador. He came to my house and got drunk and said, I'm out of touch with our friends. Can you put me back in touch with them? And then, for the first time, I knew that he was indeed the man behind Blunt. Uh, he himself was not in government at that time. He was working at the BBC in a non-sensitive position, picking up bits of gossip. 
here and there, running errands for Winston Churchill and others, but never in a position to really have sensitive documents which he could pass. But later on, on he did rise in the Foreign Service. He did so, indeed. Uh, I didn't know that, of course. I went into the Air Force myself and became a bomber pilot. I was gone for the period of the war. I did not return to England until 1949, and there I met Blunt and Burgess by accident at an apostle's dinner. Uh, and they said they wanted to talk to me without any question. What they wanted to find out was, had I turned them in or was I about to turn them in? And that was a unpleasant, bitter meeting between the three of us because I bitterly attacked them when I learned that both of them had been in intelligence work. It was the first time I learned it, and it came as a great shock to me. Blunt had been in intelligence work during the war. Uh, Burgess had been in the BBC but had now just gone into the Foreign Office. One had been in M16, British intelligence, the other had been in M15, counterintelligence. I forget which was which. During the war? Yeah. Uh, that's probably right. Uh, yes. But after the war, Blunt had gone back to art historian work, Burgess had gone back to the BBC, but after a time he had returned to the Foreign Office briefly. And I told him I thought that was terrible and he should get out of government, and he said to me, uh, I am about to get out. And foolishly and naively, I took him at his word. I then saw him again once more in 1951. Uh, and I said to him, what are you doing here in Washington? I saw him by accident outside the British Embassy. He said, I am working in the embassy. Uh, we were then at war in Korea, and it occurred to me that he might be costing the lives of American soldiers, and I was deeply angered. And I said to him, if you are not out of government within a month or two, I swear to you, I'll turn you in. And that was just three months before he fled to Moscow. I don't know whether it was a factor of his fleeing or not. It's quite Ag possible you precipitated his flight to it Moscow. It is possible. Again, Where I he still lives and flourishes, or has he No, died? he's dead. He's yeah. dead. Philby he is still there, sitting at the side of Andropov. The two of them went to Moscow, and they both uh, McLean is were dying of cancer. McLean is dying of cancer at this moment in Moscow. Uh -huh. uh, Philby is very much alive, very powerful. Blunt is... Uh, Philby actually took a post in the KGB, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. And is said to have reorganized a good deal of their work. Uh, Burgess is dead. There you have it, Mark. I'm eager to hear your response to what you've just heard. Well, I do, I do think these are, uh, as I say in the book, the small lies we tell ourselves. You know, uh, these were mm. not unimportant men. Even when he describes Blunt as an art historian, mm. Anthony Blunt was the surveyor of the Queen's pictures. He, he, uh, he was sitting there in Buckingham Palace. He had greater access to the highest levels of the British establishment than, than almost anyone. Uh, Philby, whom he mentioned there, was on the short list to succeed as C, the head of the Secret Service, uh, whom most of us know as M right. in the James Bond movies. In real life, uh, M is called C. And Philby uh, was on the short list to become uh, head of the British Secret Service. Uh, McLean uh, was on his way to becoming British ambassador in Washington. Burgess almost certainly uh, leaked the information that uh, led to the uh, deaths of uh, General MacArthur's men in, uh, at Yalu River in uh, Korea in 1950. In other words, we're not talking about peripheral figures. We're talking about key events that cost real people's lives. And in that book that and, man, and, uh, in a, and in our conversation, what he reveals essentially is that even at the end, though he knew of uh, their still uh, filling significant roles in British government and still working for the Soviets, he warned them, you better stop doing that or I'll turn you in. But he didn't report on them. Uh, no. So in, they got away with it for a good time uh, and did further damage for months or years beyond. 
Yes, and, and in fact, he didn't uh, come clean, as it were, until 1963 uh, when he uh, was uh, uh, feared that he wouldn't uh, survive a background check no. for joining the uh, National Endowment of the Arts, of all things. Uh, you know, he is, it, it is interesting uh, that the, the, this, these kind of languid upper-class figures who seem very harmless, and, and in a sense, that harmlessness does become a mask. Uh, there's a little exchange I, I quote in the book, uh, where he and a pal are on this kind of pilgrimage as uh, communist idealists in Moscow. And he asks the pal, do I look like a proletarian? Mm. And the friend says, no, you look like a millionaire pretending to be a proletarian. Well, a millionaire pretending to be a proletarian can do an awful lot of damage. Were they in the category that Lenin so long ago classified as useful idiots? I think that's how their controllers looked at them. Um, you know, uh, Arnold Deutsch, who uh, ran the Cambridge Spies uh, for Moscow, despised Michael Strait and, and, uh, and, and called him someone who behaves like a child in his romanticism. Mm. Uh, and, and that was true right to the end. That's a deeply, uh, that book that, uh, that uh, he was talking about uh, with you, Milt, that is a deeply self-serving memoir. And I thought the, so as well, yes. The passivity of it, you know, the idea that he, he takes refuge in these uh, uh, rhetorical deceits, you know, caught up in the current of history mm -hmm. and carried out of my depth. Uh, I, I, th there are millions of people who are genuinely caught up in the current of uh, history. The, you, you know, there's all kinds of odd figures in obscure parts of the world now leading difficult lives. In, in strange countries on the fringes of the map who are genuinely caught up in the current of history. He wasn't. He was a millionaire uh, playing, uh, in fact, splashing in the current of history as, as, a kind of, uh, as a kind of hobby. As we pause for a moment uh, for a quick update on the news, I think the question I really want to press upon you, uh, looking forward to your response in just about two minutes, is, is he in some ways emblematic of a general failure of nerve or even failure of loyalty and intelligence on the part of those who are privileged within Western society? And we will return directly to Mark Stein after we go to Paula Cooper for an update on the news. I think, Mark, the question I'm really posing for you is, what does the case of Michael Strait uh, teach us about uh, the weaker-minded or the weaker-willed among our own intellectual and uh, and journalistic elites in the West today? Well, I think, I think there is a problem in, in that uh, the Michael Strait way of looking at things has kind of spread. It's not just confined to a privileged elite anymore. There have always been people who uh, were born in the upper echelons of society and take a more cosmopolitan view because often they're educated abroad, uh, they have closer friends abroad, uh, they think it uh, perfectly routine to have a home in Switzerland and another in the south of France. And uh, in a sense, you can understand why their allegiance uh, strays and wanders off the map uh, in, in a way that it's hard to for ordinary citizens. Uh, and I think, that is, uh, I think that is a more widespread problem these days, that in a sense we, we look at uh, conventional uh, feelings of allegiance to one's nation uh, in a slightly different way. And we tend to excuse people like the Cambridge spies. They excuse themselves. They valued personal loyalty above uh, loyalty uh, to their nation. We remember the great quotation from E.M. Forster, don't we? 
Yes, where he said, if I was given a choice between betraying my country or betraying my friend, I hope I should have the courage to betray my country. Yes. Uh, and that was basically the way people like Anthony Blunt uh, mm -hmm. looked at it. Anthony Blunt, who was, uh, as I said earlier, the keeper of the Queen's pictures, he was a crashing snob. He was a crashing snob. He sat there next to the Queen Mother and the Queen every week. They'd have tea. He loved the Queen. He loved the Queen Mother. But he seemed to think you could, you could both be a fawning sycophant to the Queen and yet be a Soviet agent. If you look at the modern press in the West, um, what, do, what do you perceive? You are often quite critical of the journalistic profession, particularly in this country. Yes, I think I think because that does also tend to lapse into a kind of uh, uh, a, a, a kind of a, a decadent um, post-nationalist attitude. You know, I think the press, for example, if you're if you're a New York Times reporter or a Chicago Tribune reporter or whatever, uh, and you're covering the war on terror, you have a stake in that. It's not going to be pleasant. Uh, if you've got a uh, if you've got a young daughter, for example, uh, if the wrong guys win in some of uh, in some of what's mm -hmm. going on, you've got a stake in it too. You should know what side you're on. Uh, frankly, not uh, if the wrong guys win, uh, it's you're not going to want to be in the journalistic profession. And I think it's an inability to understand that uh, that actually cripples these people. There's some there's something almost absurd. Uh, about the way they they uh, they adopt this this pose of kind of being neutral between insurgent terrorists and their own country's armed forces. That's that's not something that went on in the Second World War or the First World War or any other conflict in human history. We are due for another quick stop and directly back to Mark Stein. We have been drawing from his entertaining, but is also um, informative and indeed. Uh, I would say, uh, uh, in some ways, directly, indirectly, um, a commentary on how we live now and how we live incorrectly now, so many of us. Uh, that book being Mark Stein's Passing Parade, Obituaries and Appreciations, published by Stockade Books. As for your book of last year, America Alone, uh, that book has had rather strong reception. I gather it even made the New York Times list which you weren't necessarily expecting to be the case, were you? <laughs> no, I, I, was, uh, I was thrilled by the, uh, by the success of it. In fact, the ongoing uh, success of it. As you said, it was uh, a New York Times bestseller here. It was a number one up in uh, Canada. Uh, it, it was uh, reviewed uh, in uh, Germany uh, in the German papers, a couple of German papers last week, and crashed into the German uh, hit parade, Excellent. which is pretty good for a foreign language book. And it's very timely for the Europeans. Uh, so I was I was thrilled uh, by the success of it and and uh, and actually rather uh, touched. I'm I'm uh, not so much by the reaction of American readers or Canadian readers, but by people who feel sort of beleaguered in uh, in Denmark and in Belgium and the Netherlands who uh, who feel that it very much spoke to. For them. those listening who didn't hear our earlier discussion and don't know the book, uh, I should ask directly: beleaguered by what? Well, basically, it's about the intersection of trends. You know, we often talk about. Uh, what's going on in, in Iraq uh, uh, as if it's purely a military thing. It's, it's not at all. What, what Islamism and Al-Qaeda and all the rest of it is a weak enemy, except insofar as uh, it happens to have coincided with a basic uh, time of profound weakness on our part. Basically, uh, most European nations, plus Japan, plus Russia, 
uh, have given up having babies. They're going out of business and they've got these huge unaffordable entitlements. And as a result, uh, in Europe, they imported a Muslim uh, population to be the children they couldn't be bothered having. Uh, those Muslims are often uh, very alienated, very unhappy, feel uh, not part of the societies they live in. They're excluded from a lot of the privileges of those societies. And they've become a real seething uh, source of discontent in France and Belgium and the Netherlands and elsewhere. And, and still breaking it twice or, or, or thrice the rate of uh, the European natives. Yes, essentially we're witnessing one of the fastest demographic transformations in uh, history. That's what's going on in, uh, in Belgium. If you, go to, I, if you do as I did and you go to a maternity ward uh, in the hospitals in those countries, you'll see who it is who's having babies. And in France, it's not uh, Jacques and Micheline who are having babies, uh, but it's, uh, it's Mohammed and, and Ahmed who are having the babies. And that is the future of France and the future of Belgium and the future of Austria and the future of Germany. What is to be done? Well, I think, I think this is the, the real question. I, I think when, when I talk to uh, political figures in the United States and Australia and elsewhere, I say this is, the, this is basically the end of the post-Second World War world, uh, that it is a real profound shift in the nature of the alliances uh, that the United States and other countries have taken for granted. Simply put, these countries are not going to be there in the future. Do you find our leadership is, is responsive to... Uh, that uh, urgent message, or are they looking the other way? Well, well, just between you and me, I would say uh, the State Department isn't particularly responsive to it. Uh, the career diplomats aren't particularly responsive to it, but there are other figures in the administration and in both parties who are. Uh, you know, by some estimates, uh, Russia's army will be majority Muslim by the year 2015. Mm -hmm. That's eight years' time. Uh, not not uh, for any other reason other than the fact that Russian men are profoundly unhealthy and basically face down in the vodka and the, and the Muslim guys are the youngest, fittest guys in the country. But if you think that, uh, that Russia was a, a ball of fun when it was communist, wait till it's uh, essentially voting the Islamist ticket at the UN Security Council. You remember years ago the, uh, uh, the German social theorist um, who got off the title for his book Der Untergang des Abendlandes, Oswald Spengler, the decline yeah. of the West. Uh, have the Abendlandes, which means the, the twilight nations, the nations at the other end of the course of the sun, are they declining in Western Europe? Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Spenglerian pessimist by nature. And it's true that there have been an awful lot of, since Spengler, an awful lot of, uh, you know, Western declinists in, uh, mm -hmm. in literature. Uh, but I think something is different now, and I do think that is this basic demographic argument. We're not talking really about a psychological condition anymore. We're talking about the fact that basically Spain's population is halving with every generation. Now, that being the case, uh, at some point, uh, Spaniards are going to be out of business. Italians are going to be out of business. You know, we worry a lot about... Uh, the the green cheek parrot, for example, who's on the endangered species list, and I'm terribly sorry for that. Uh, but I've never seen a green cheek parrot. I'm not going to miss them terribly much from my life. But I will miss Italians, and they're going to be out of business. Have you heard that the Prince of Wales has said that when he is uh, elevated to the monarchy, if his mother ever um, somehow makes that possible, uh, and gives you an opportunity for another great obituary, that uh, he the Prince of Wales will no longer style himself defender of the faith, but rather defender of faith. 
Yeah, and I, I, I think in his situation, uh, the, by law, the, uh, the Queen is Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Yes. Uh, now, I, I think the, uh, the Prince of Wales would be much better off trying to be faithful to one church rather than trying to be faithful to all. I mean, he is all but Islamic. He has a Muslim garden at his home mm -hmm. at Highgrove. Uh, in uh, in Gloucestershire, in England, uh, he 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 basically is someone who the, the sort of Bedouin romance of the desert the, the speaks to him, and so when he meets uh, a couple of days after September 11th, he had a big dinner with Osama bin Laden's brother. He got all dolled up into the Lawrence of Arabia getup, good lord, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and basically had an, an Arabic uh, dinner. Well, I now is is he merely an odd twit? Or is he, in, in, in the Monty Python sense, or rather, is he somehow representative of a yielding and appeasing uh, style which goes with, uh, if not British aristocracy, maybe more generally, with uh, those who are empowered in Britain? Well, I, I would have no objection to him if he was just, as you say, an odd twit. I've got nothing against odd twits. Uh, but, but I think it's something more than that, that he sees himself as a great thinker yeah. uh, and, that he, and that he feels very much that he has a particular insight into the Islamic world. In the same way, for example, as uh, King Edward VIII, the Duke of Windsor in the 1930s... Was a great thought, friend of the Nazis, of course. Yes, and yeah. thought that he understood... Uh, the Germans. He got on the wrong side of the big question in the 1930s, and I think you can make the case that the present Prince of Wales is on the wrong side of the big question. But can today. you more broadly make the case that the governments of Western Europe, uh, if only because they've got uh, is, uh, Muslim voters to worry about, are yielding far more than they should? Yes, because I think if you if you look at, for example, the electoral math in the United States, the Democratic Party has very compelling reasons. Uh, for not wanting, for example, to offend certain parts of its constituency, for example, like the black vote. The black vote, I believe... And the Mexican vote. Yep, and, and the black vote at the moment, I think, is about uh, 9 or 10 percent of the total vote. Well, now, uh, the Muslim vote in France is significantly larger than that. And you think uh, of our 50-50 elections, you think of the difference of a few dimple chads in Palm Beach County uh, make in the 2000 election. And then you look at the numbers in, uh, in, in the French elections, in the Belgian and the Dutch elections. Nobody, no serious politician is going to want to uh, immediately create a hostile voting bloc that big. Jacques Chirac has very compelling reasons for not wanting to send his troops into battle alongside the great Satan to liberate Mesopotamia. That, is, that would not be a priority for any of us in Jacques Chirac's position. Mark, I must tell you, in the words of a famous New Hampshireman, I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. The immediate <laughs> promise is a last round of commercials. And then directly back to Mark Stein. And we enter the home stretch with Mark Stein, whose new book, Passing Parade, Obituaries and Appreciations, is available from Stockade Books. And undoubtedly, wherever they sell real books, you can get your hands on it. And if you are eager to do so quickly, you can go to our own website. Go to WGNRadio.com, click on Milt Rosenberg, which brings you to our site, and then click on uh, the uh, program guide and scroll down to tonight's date, and you will see a picture of the cover of this book. Click on that, and you're in the hands of Barnes & Noble, who will sell it to you at a discount. 591-7200, and Mark will work in a few quick calls. Here is the first. Hello, you're on the air. Two of my favorite people I'm talking to. Well, thank you, sir. Um, now, I will tell you, the demographic problem you're speaking of, is it not fundamentally a religious one? 
and, and, and what I mean by that, it's something that goes beyond um, what, what government can implant in us. And I guess I throw that out for your comment. Yes, I, I, I would agree with that. I'm not sure whether it's uh, necessarily religion, but, but certainly uh, the Europeans are running up against the idea of the life without purpose. And if you have a life without purpose, no matter how comfortable it is, it's hard to renew that and sustain it over several generations. Uh, it's uh, regrettably the, the fact that if you happen to be an atheist, there are no examples of sustained atheist societies. They're present tense societies. Well, and, and I say that as someone who has several children, I mean more than ten, uh, one of which who serves at the U.S. Marine Corps. Um, and and I, when I tell people how many children I have, right away it, it, it's either a conversation ender or it's, it's into the world of, of the inability to communicate. Um, why would you have that many children? Why would you be open to have that many children? Well, fundamentally, it's a, it's a belief in something that is beyond us, something worth sacrificing for. Um, not so that they can serve in the military, certainly not primarily, but, but something that really goes beyond us and has to do with the human spirit. Well, well, well if uh, they don't serve in the military, whatever it is they're doing, they're going to be the ones who are working and therefore paying the taxes and therefore keeping uh, Social Security solvent so it can pay uh, the neighbors in the house next door to you who didn't have any children. Right. So in actual fact, uh, if you look at it that uh, two or three of those children are going to be supporting you in your old age, that frees up seven or eight of them to support <laughs> the childless neighbors in your society. Uh, so in fact, you're doing those people who look at you askance, you're actually doing them a, a, a favor in old age. Sir, we thank you for the call. Time is rather short. I want to read you an email from your home country. Uh, here's a listener in Vancouver who says, could you ask Mark if there are any Canadians in his biography, in his biography book, uh, <laughs> that he thinks highly of? So many famous ones in the past 30 years don't have much appeal for me. Enjoying your show from snowy Vancouver. No, that's uh, that's true. Oddly enough, there there is a very obscure Canadian uh, connection in uh, a lady called uh, Paula Yates, who was a kind of groupie to various rock stars, and uh, and was the consort of Bob Geldof, who organises Live Aid and all these charity concerts, and uh, and she turns out uh, to have a rather bizarre Canadian uh, connection, uh, named uh, named for an obscure uh, Canadian government minister uh, from a couple of jet from the First World War. So th that's a very odd genealogical tale I tell there that has a Canadian uh, angle to it. Now, Mark, in the last few minutes we've got, I do want to note that, of course, your career seems to have begun with a lot of commentary on and reportage on essentially showbiz and music. Uh, yes, and in fact, if it weren't for all these other big questions, that's what I'd, I'd do uh, all the time. You know, I find uh, one of the things I most enjoy in life, uh, I, we, we began a couple of hours ago talking about uh, Romano Mussolini playing the piano. That's yeah. one of the happiest occasions in my life, when you go into some little club in, uh, in London or Paris or Rome, and you'll hear some guy noodling a song, and you maybe know the song, and you've heard it a thousand times before, but he's doing something uh, different. And along those lines, I do want you to hear a last quick musical excerpt, and then we will talk, if only briefly, about the man who's doing this noodling.
You recognize that, I'm sure. That's one of the most beautiful sounds on God's earth. That's uh, Artie Shaw. Uh, and just uh, marvelous that are 60, 70 years old now and still mm -hmm. sound fantastic. Stardust. Mm. Uh, and I found your obituary for Shaw quite fascinating. It takes us away from all the more urgent issues of social policy and the future of Western civilization. Um, uh, an interesting eccentric fellow. Yes, he, he had eight wives. He uh, called himself uh, the, the kind of ex-husband of love goddesses. I mean, he married some of the hottest women. Ava Gardner of was the one. Day. Uh, Ava Gardner. Uh, he was engaged to Betty Grable and then abandoned her to run off with Lana Turner. I mean, he basically <laughs> had the pick of, uh, of of the women. He was a very difficult man. I uh, I interviewed him uh, once and. Uh, uh, it, it, there's a there's a line uh, that Cole Porter said of the Duchess of Windsor. She always returned the ball yeah. uh, about her conversational style. Well, Artie Shaw never waited that long. Uh, you'd barely get the ball into your racket, and he'd be ramming it down your throat. I mean, he was a jumpy, impatient, irascible man with huge numbers of interests. Uh, and he simply was the greatest guy in the world at playing the clarinet, and he did it for a few years, and he got bored with it. He was the greatest guy on the planet playing the clarinet. Put the clarinet away and did, away. didn't play it for the last 30 years of his life, I gather. No, no. And he and he was one of those strange, obsessive men. Uh, he was married to Evelyn Keyes, whom some of your listeners mm -hmm. will remember was the actress who was in the Jolson story. And he had all these, she, she, she said after their divorce, what always, every time she goes and changes the toilet paper, she thinks of Artie Shaw, because <laughs> if, if she hung it up to unwind from the back rather than the front, it would drive him nuts and would drive him into a <laughs> frenzy. And uh, it's amazing to think of a man so profoundly gifted as he was, uh, just driven insane by all the, the, all the kind of flim flam of life.